Welcome to another episode of the Social Justice Education Network podcast. This is your host, Emilio Herrera. Thank you for joining us for our second installment on this month's theme, Broken Systems. We welcome Jasmine Harris, uh, MPH and SCES. Uh, she is a public health professional, writer, speaker, and she's passionate about public health, criminal and social justice issues, and women's rights. We took some time to really dig in to the system of criminal justice. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did making it. You can do us a favor by going over to iTunes, giving us a rating, a review. Right now we have two reviews. One is a one star and one is a five star. And I know there are more opinions out there of us than that. So we would love to hear from you. Thank you. Here we go. another episode of the social justice education network podcast as always this is your host emilio herrera and i am joined by a very special guest jasmine harris am i saying that correctly yes you are great so jasmine um why are you so very special (laughs) i'm very special because i love hard and i am always smiling people say that my smile is rememberable so that's why i'm special great so let's talk about something that is lighthearted and easy, which is um, this month we're talking about broken systems. And so we are going to talk about something that uh, I think is super popular in the news. Um, it's something that is trending right now, and that is a criminal justice system. And I, I really um, like to put emphasis of when I talk about this, that it is a system. People think that there's only two things. There's just police and then you go straight to prison, and that's it. And those are the only possibilities. But um, as both of us know, there is this huge system. So what can you tell us about uh, a part of this? Because there's no way to talk about it in 45 minutes. What yeah. part of this is broken? Um, the whole system. Yes. <laughs> the whole system is broken. When we talk about the criminal justice system, It's made up of components, and you touched on it. There is the policing, the law enforcement piece, um, and then there's the court piece. That's its own system. And then you also have the corrections piece, which then again is, you know, it's another system. So the criminal justice system is made up of pieces and agencies and organizations, and it's all broken. Um, I've heard people say, well, the system isn't broken because it was never built to function towards um marginalized people anyway and mm-hmm. and that's true um when we look at the constitution and how african americans were only counted as three-fifths of a person um even though it was as far as representation in the government goes but it's still if you're not able to be counted as a whole person and what what is going to change that mindset of people to value you as a whole person anyway so those are the people who mindsets developed the system that we're talking about so the whole thing, I think, needs to be torn down, demolished, and then built up based on what we already know now from what we've learned over the years. That, that's huge. Um, I, I mean, what better way? We're about two and a half minutes into this and <laughs> already uh, that's, a, that's a huge statement. So let's, let's break that down into some bite-sized pieces because I think when people hear someone say that we need to demolish the whole system what they think is someone saying is like we just need to have anarchy is we need to you know have uh riots in the streets and we need to and then there will just be no rule of law um nothing like that so breaking that down to uh, a little what are some of the 
things that you've seen that are broken that maybe can be fixed or maybe that should be done away with completely. Okay, so we'll, we could break it down by each individual system that was is in the criminal justice system. If you look at law enforcement, it's really big now with the Black Lives Matter movement because we see um, the disproportionate no, amounts of African-American men, um, transgender individuals, you know, being killed and things of that nature. So when you look at it, you have to look at the policies, the training that goes into our law enforcement. That's one of the places where it's really broken and that we can start to try and rebuild. It, it, it's not easy. You know, just talking about it, it seems like it can be easy. Um, but we already know, like you said, riding in the streets, things of that nature, that's what's going on right now. And it's not changing the system. Only thing that's going to change the system are those policies that are put in place. Getting our representation to the table and making our voices heard and making sure that the follow through comes with that. Well, I mean, talk about hot button issue right now. And uh, our entire last month was all based on the Black Lives Matter movement. So I got I was fortunate to have a lot of conversations about this. Um, and something that uh, people brought up a lot was that it seems like there's two teams. Like they try to say there's there's black people in particular, but people people of color versus the police. And those are the only things. And therefore, if you're pro-Black Lives Matter, then you're anti-police. And by saying that they need better training, you're saying that they're wholly incompetent and they're terrible people and they're they're um, awful. Uh, and I think that's it's that's such stark thinking. It's such black and white thinking. Yes, nothing is ever black and white. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's very it's very gray areas when it comes to that. And I know police officers who are great, and I would never say that I'm against police officers. I'm not against the criminal justice process. It has to be read read managed in a way that it will work for everyone because we see now that it's not there is a disproportionate amount of african-american and latino men who are in our prison system there's a disproportionate amount of african-american women who are in our system so when we look at that why is the answer why do we have such a a racial disproportion when it comes to our criminal justice system because when a system is built to suppress a whole population you see that in the numbers of what's going on. When we look at uh, substance use, we find that our white counterparts use substance just as much as our people of color. And when you look at the jail system, that does not reflect the actual part of it. You know, people are being jailed not just because they are selling drugs, but because they are using drugs. And the thing that I've been been tussling with lately is why now all of a sudden people want to start addressing the usage of drugs and the criminalization of drugs. And we get into the whole um, pharmaceutical prescription drug abuse epidemic that is running rampant in our middle America, in our middle-income America. And for me, that's a red button that now people want to start paying attention to. How do we handle people who are abusing drugs when now it's faced with that middle America white person that yeah um and that goes in combination with something a part of the system that you mentioned earlier uh that I think is one that people can overlook but has in the last couple years um I feel like really in the last year got a lot of attention that is even uh judges about 
maybe uh, or the whole uh, trial process of of someone because it's supposed to be everyone's equal in the eyes of the law. But there's been so many cases that have been coming out that show that, oh, wait, maybe not because we're supposed to get uh, the system supposed to supposed to, quote unquote, uh, give a fair trial by a jury of your peers. Um, so where's the where's the breakdown in there? Um, for me, when I see the cases like with uh, Brock Turner, and um, I can't remember the other individual's name, but um, uh, African-American athlete at a different college, same kind of situations, uh, sexual assault of a woman, and Brock Turner gets six months and out in three months with good time, but yet this other gentleman is now facing like 10 plus years. It, it's horrendous, and it, it makes me sick to my stomach that our system is supposed to be set up to where those two individuals would face the same kind of sentencing, the same kind of punishment, but because of white privilege and the subjectiveness of how our laws are set up for the judges to interpret into however they want to sentence, mm-hmm. it, it really shows the bigotry and the racism and bi- the biases that sit within the individuals who run those systems. Um, it, it's, yeah, I, I get caught up every time I talk about it and emotional about it. Yeah, and I think the emotions run high. And I'll say that uh, maybe we're not having the real conversation because I know that there's going to be some people, even the people who listen to this and they like this, you use the word white privilege and they're going to say, mm, I don't. I don't like that. I don't know if that's the case. Maybe it's more of an income thing. I don't really know if if everyone's equal in the eyes of the law. I don't see color, uh, and neither does the law. Um, what what would you say to that, to those people who are just saying, like, I don't know if that's really the reason? <laughs> it man you're looking we, up you're looking we, up the heaven saying <laughs> when we go back and look at our history and we look at how our people of color were treated by law enforcement so you want to take um a lot of people try to compare with the civil rights movement people who were just out there trying to get the right to vote were had dogs put on them mm-hmm. were hit and with batons just for peacefully sitting in the middle of a street doing their due justice, their due diligence, just to be peaceful about a matter. But you say it's, there's no such thing as white privilege. I I, I just, I don't, I think people really need to open their eyes when people are trying to explain a concept to them and, and don't go in with a closed minded. We look at the Ku Klux Klan. And how they wear the sheets. Why do they wear the sheets? Because they were judges. They were police officers. They were people of affluence in those communities who didn't want their um, their descriptions, their mm-hmm. IDs to be known, things of that nature. So, you know, it's when people say, well, no, I don't think that's those are the people who are over here pursuing and investigating. Those are the people who are prosecuting and or quote-unquote defending and the same people who are our corrections you know so i'm not saying that everybody in there is ku klux klan or you know Mm -hmm. affiliated of that nature Mm -hmm. but those were the mindsets that were ingrained in people back then and mindsets don't go away they're handed down so that's what we're up against you know everyone says well racism is dead no racism was just lying right under the surface bubbling and then when 
we had our first African-American president in office. And then when Donald Trump decided to run for president, it, everything just full force came to the surface. Well, and what a short amount of time historically that racism, quote unquote, was dead. Because let's say people say, all right, Civil Rights Act ended it 1965. Let's say for all sake of argument, Civil Rights Act ended it. Well, uh, then it was, what, 51 years that racism was dead and then right back to life, right? So 51 years out of the grand scheme of things, let's say for sake of argument, racism didn't exist in those 51 years. That wasn't very long, you know, yeah. that, that it would have been dead. One thing that always gets me um, talking about uh, the justice system is the idea of a, a jury of your peers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and this was, I think, really came to my mind. Um, I think it was the George Zimmerman trial, well, I think it was, and I don't want to speak errantly on this, but I probably will. I, I, th I think there was one or two people of color that were on that jury, right? And the rest was white. And I just thought, what is, you know, what does a jury of, of your peers really mean, right? Yes. Who gets to quote unquote be your peers, right? Yes. If I go to, if I'm on trial, are they going to find other, um, middle-class Latino men that are going to do that? No, likely not. Uh, so in that way, I don't, I don't know. Um, and so are, and like you said, are, is the system even set up to benefit people in, in that way? The, the jury selection process is supposed to be set up through voter registration. Mm -hmm. And I'm really involved with, um, voter registration, uh, this year. And it, it behooves me to talk about, when we're talking about the criminal justice system, the disenfranchisement of people um, who have a felony record. Mm -hmm. Every state has their discretion of when to um, give these individuals their rights to vote back. Some states are saying not at all. Um, here in Nebraska, it's um, two years after they complete uh, their prison sentence or uh, parole sentence. And a lot of people... Are, you know, they don't want to register to vote after that. And it started making me wonder, we've held people down for so long, discouraged them from everything. We've put them in jail. We harass them every time we turn around. Why would they want to be involved in that process of registering to vote? So right now it's really educating everyone. We don't, we know a lot of people don't want to vote in the in the presidential election. They they don't have a favorite at all. But to vote down the ballot, because what people need to understand when it comes to that, that's how you become a part of a jury. Um, it's a random selection. It, it it may not happen to where you'll get a lot of Latino middle income mm. men there, but there's a a high chance if people were to register to vote that they would get in that process. So I was saying the other night at um, a panel that we had, looking at it from that standpoint, trying to get individuals who now have been reinstated, their, their, their right to vote has been reinstated, encouraging them to get back involved in that process so that they can start making up that panel of jurors so they are peers of the individuals. And looking at it from... I'm one of the people, when I first got called for jury duty, I was trying to find every excuse in the book <laughs> uh -huh. to try and not be a part of uh, the jury. I was I think I was 21 at the time. But mm -hmm. as I've been a person who has been affected by the criminal justice system and now seeing the importance of it, I'm willing to jump at it at any chance that I get. And also educating them on the part that 
we vote our judges in and out of mm-hmm. office. So making sure if this judge is up here doing wrong, we need to show out numbers and make sure the system is working how it's supposed to. So I've um, I worked for a few places uh, as a social worker. At one point, I was uh, in the uh, working involved in the foster care system, and something really stuck out to me. Um, I noticed that it was so much easier for people who um, were black and who lived in poverty. It was so much easier for them to have their kids taken away and so much harder for the get for them to get them back. It really, and just how blatant it was, really shook me. I didn't last very long inside that system because I just thought, how, why is no one changing this? You know, how does no one care? Because there's, there, there's two similar cases of where, um, by the time it took eight months for this, uh, a case to get to a, to, um, the judge and the judge threw it out right away. And I was like, okay, great. And they said it'd probably be, um, in total a year and a half until that family got their, their kids back. And though they had done nothing wrong and another case, um, very similar where they had enough money, who they were white and they had enough money to, to get a lawyer. They got their kids back in a couple of days while they waited for that process to happen. And just like the st- the stark contrast of that really shook me to my core. Um, and, and so what, what can, what can change when we're talking about the, another thing that I noticed is that if there's any mention of drugs, if someone looks like they, if they might've had drugs and done something like that, that, uh, especially if they're a person of color, that the book is thrown at them. Like it's the worst, it's one of the most egregious things you can do is to have an ounce of marijuana on you. Um, and maybe that's some remnants from the, the war on drugs, uh, which really turned out to be a war on, um, poor people, uh, particularly poor people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that, on like, we're living, I think in, in the wake of the war on drugs. Man, so many thoughts just went through my head when you were talking right Mm -hmm. there. Um, you brought up the child welfare system. And looking at it from that standpoint in criminal justice, because even though criminal justice system is over here with its components, it affects every other system that we have. This whole world was set up with a homeostasis, a balance. It has to be in balance for the world to keep going, and we're messing it up. So this world is a whole system. So when you look at how the criminal justice system was designed, it was designed not with the child welfare system in mind. It was designed not with the mental health care system in mind. So we have all these health care systems or all these uh, systems coinciding with each other, but they're crashing. And it mm-hmm. and it's, it's just showing how out of whack all of the systems are, and they're not communicating with each other. So I think that's one thing uh, that came through my mind when you talked about that. All of these systems need to, when they are looking at the kinks that are in them, they need to conversate with each other. It's, it's like uh, in the work that we do in public health. Everybody wants to work in silos, but you never know mm. what that silo over there is doing and how you're going to, to affect that silo. So that's exactly what they're doing. Um, when we look at it, there are 1.7 million children with parents in the criminal justice system. And as you stated, African-American parents, um, they are more likely to have their children put into the child welfare system instead of um, living at home with the other said parent or um, when it comes to African-American women who go into prison, their children are more likely to um, go with a grandparent 
or into the foster care system, or as the black man, and that child will more than likely be living with the mother. So our children are really being affected by that, um, not just through the whole foster care. And we see that, especially in Nebraska, the foster care system and how uh, the past couple of years it, it was kind of just muddled and really needed to be worked on. So when we look at it from that standpoint, and you talk about also the war on drugs, it it just brings up a whole lot. I was um, looking at trying to find the beginning of this whole war on drugs things, and I was um, viewing a webinar, and it was talking about the Rockefeller drug laws in New York. And Nixon actually started it like a few years before that with his quote-unquote war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And when Rockefeller was governor of New York, he was like, all right, we're going to do this. Uh, life for drug dealers and people using drugs, no parole, things of that nature. So that's where it all started. And it was just because we've seen how the poor and people of color were disproportionately affected by it. I also, when I read, it really just blows my mind because sometimes I never think of the stuff that people write. I just um, heard something the other day or read something the other day and it talked about using the police to come in and subdue a neighborhood for gentrification. So when mm. you come in and this neighborhood has been overrun by drugs and drug dealers, it's easy to send the police in. They're doing racial profiling. They're, you know, getting people out. And that's how a lot of things just happen that way. And we don't even really think about it. So there's there's two laws that um, I brought up in a class I'm teaching on social welfare, uh, and we were talking at the institutional level, um, how is there discrimination? And so there's two laws that, that I brought up that I think are linked in a way, uh, but also it, people are kind of ignorant too. So the first one is stop and frisk. Mm-hmm. Um, should we talk about that? And the second one was in uh, – uh, New Mexico, I believe, um, where it was a law that they could stop someone on suspicion of being an undocumented immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so both of those things, and I took a poll in my class and I asked how many people think that they should uh, allow this. And and uh, a number of people put their hands out and I said, okay, well, congratulations, you just violated the Constitution because the, four- uh, the 14th Amendment says that you cannot do these types of things, mm-hmm. right? So I thought it was interesting uh, to me and and you know I did that because th- these are my students and because I just want to show them and it's out of love that I say like just notice like even ways like that's how laws get passed that violate things like that because some people might know as much as you you've been studying social welfare for the last few weeks and you didn't even know that that was illegal right and uh, some of your elected officials probably don't either mm-hmm. um, but let's let's dive into those uh are you familiar with stop and frisk yes. and 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 what happens there? Could you explain it to the audience? Stop and frisk is um, the pol- gives the police officer the right to if someone looks even half of inch of suspicious, they can go over, stop them, frisk them, and whatever they find on them, they can write them up for that. You know, without any other probable cause except for just looking like they're in the wrong place. Suspicious, yeah, quote unquote. So it's, it's just one of those, and those are the policies and things that we're up against. Stop and frisk that. Are you really going to be walking down on um, Wall Street to stop and frisk someone? Or are you going to be over in the Bronx or, you know, 
Brooklyn, things of that nature, stopping and frisking people. And that's what we're talking about when we say the system is set up to suppress individuals. Mm -hmm. Because, like you said, with the other one, um, for pulling over individuals who look like they're undocumented, what does looking undocumented look like? (laughs) Well, and that was something that was brought up in an interview. And they said, what do you mean by looking documented? And uh, the person who introduced the bill said, well, you can tell by the way they dress or the shoes they wear. And so everyone just, you know, you heard a selective uh, or, or a collective, like, slap on everyone's head just be like what are you talking about right so it turns out that being suspicious in in new york and new mexico really just means uh being brown or black right that is what being suspicious and the thing that really blew my mind about stop and frisk is that pretty pretty quickly uh some places started doing research started getting data and they showed pretty quickly that all right they're stopping a lot of of black and latino people and they don't commit crime at any higher rate than anyone else. And they came out and they said, hey, we need to stop this. It's not effective. And they kept doing it, right? Like they just said like, okay, well, we're going to keep we're gonna keep doing this policy. Um, and it went on, if I'm not mistaken, for about a, for about a decade. It just it, – it really just it highlights to me of like how people can be maybe well-intentioned but also lead into this – into the idea of that the justice system isn't fair or isn't serving them. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the prison system. Um, how does all the things we've mentioned in your mind, how does that lead to the prison system? And I think uh, people don't have a lot of sympathy for people who are in prison because they say, well, you did something wrong, you do your time, and then you get out and you live the rest of your life. Or if you did something bad enough, you stay in prison for the rest of your life because you're a danger to society and we don't want you here. Mm-hmm. When we look at the corrections in the prison system, it's we're spending a lot of money to house – and I don't even sometimes say house. I say to cage individuals because mm. they're being treated – like animals. When we look at solitary confinement, being locked up for 23 hours a day, that's not fit for any human being. Even the worst of the worst. They should not be caged like animals. You have conditions that are deplorable. We see overcrowding. Um, Someone was just saying that here, um, I think we're at 300% over capacity in Nebraska prisons. So you're fitting four, five, six individuals in a cell that were made for two individuals. So that's not conducive either. There are just different ways uh, that things are done within those systems, within the prison system, that can be um, improved. When we talk about like solitary confinement and being locked up 23 hours a day, no human contact, you have individuals who are made be in solitary confinement for months to years yeah. upon time. And um, we just did a panel on um, Herman Wallace, who was a part of the Angola Three down in Louisiana, and he was locked up in solitary confinement for, I think, 40 years. 40 years caged like an animal. Do you not think that someone would lose their mind and develop a psychosis or some kind of mental illness? So we're looking at that as well. And then... The jail systems, the prison systems, are becoming the biggest housers of our population who have mental illnesses, and they are not equipped with the mental health care services to take care of those individuals. 
So it's it's a lot that's going on. And, and from my public health standpoint, I'm also questioning how are they uh, being fed nutrition-wise? Are they getting enough nutrition? Um, I seen an article where they were cutting back on how many meals individuals are getting because of how much it costs. We're looking, I think, oh, what is it, $259 million in Nebraska per year for correction expenditures. And that's just Nebraska. Wow. I don't know how much everywhere else is. And there's that's a lot amazing. that goes into that, you know? Well, and when you think about that there's just under 2 million people that live in Nebraska, like, what... What does that what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that mean for us as taxpayers? And and then when you said you people have those attitudes of, well, you did the crime, you go do the time. Yeah, that's how things should be, but don't be caged as uh, animals. Our prison system should be set up for rehabilitation so that individuals can come out back into society and be able to function. And I have the school of thought. Some people go in not even at a level of rehabilitation because they were never at that level anyway. So giving them those skills and tools that they never even had in the first place when they go back out to be able to function in society and keep it, um, you know, have a productive life. And we look at it from that standpoint, too. We have a societal issue a mindset issue when individuals come back into society and that's where a lot of things happen for recidivism when individuals go right back into the you know the whole process again um if they're coming out on parole you can you can't do the slightest step your toe over the middle line and then you're back in the prison system so we have to look at what are we doing as a community to help individuals come back into our community because they're they are our neighbors they are going to be mm. our co-workers they are going to be somebody giving us service so we have to start looking at the mindset of our community members and how we are helping them to become productive members of our community i think that's hard for some people especially when someone's been convicted of a violent crime uh, maybe they have a felony for for uh armed robbery or they have a felony for for uh felony with a weapon um, I think in some people's mind, those people should suffer for the rest of their life. And so if they, when they get out of jail and, uh, they're having a hard time finding a job because that felony, it's not a lot of sympathy for, for those type of people. And they think, well, you shouldn't have done that at that thing. Um, and what really sticks in my mind is, um, when, when juveniles are tried as adults, uh, and for some people they say, well, yeah, if it's heinous enough, you should be able to try a, a juvenile as an adult. Um, What's your what's your thoughts on that? What we're finding um, when we look at substance use and the brain, everyone thought that at eighteen year old at eighteen years old you're an adult you can make decisions. We're finding that at twenty five years old that's when your brain has fully developed. Mm. So you now are faced with charging someone who is sixteen year old sixteen years old as if they're an adult. Whereas in all actuality, until we're 25, we're probably not making the best decisions anyway. I know at 25, I probably still wasn't making the best decisions either. <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> so it's just, you know, we're looking at it from that standpoint. So we can't in all honesty say that this child should be tried and convicted as an adult and then thrown into prison for the rest of their lives. And so I'm glad that people... Um, People started looking at that and bringing that back up to the forefront and making sure that our children who were tried back then as adults aren't sitting there, you know, with life sentences anymore. Mm. 
um, yeah, it's it's really sad because children have the capability of being redirected. And that's what we want. We want for individuals to be redirected so when they come back, it's easier for them to live a full life. It's, you know, it, it does a disservice to our futures mm-hmm. when we have individuals who went in at 15, 16 years old being locked up until they're 40 years old. Where, you know, who knows? Maybe that individual, just because they didn't receive enough of the um, endearingness and, you know, whatever skills that they needed at that young age, they could have been something. They could have maybe even discovered the cure for cancer or something. You know, like that. It's just mm-hmm. when we look at it from that standpoint, we're not helping and we're not encouraging our youth to be redirected when we're trying them as adults or when they're that young. Um, I mentioned before about groups who don't get a lot of sympathy and something that I've heard a lot of calls for reform from, but it's just been a lot of passiveness just because people don't think it affects them, are the people who go in for drug charges. And I don't think people realize um, what the system looks like now for drug charges. So a lot of people don't realize, in one of our older podcasts, I got to speak with a researcher um, who did research on uh, how uh, Colorado drug laws affect Nebraska. Um, and something you mentioned on there was that marijuana is still classified as a Schedule One drug, so mm-hmm. a very harmful drug with no medical purpose. Um, and in lots of places, you can get in big, big, big trouble for having it. Uh, if you have any type of processed marijuana, there's some places, some counties in Nebraska that the sheriffs there say that if they find you with that, you're leaving a felon, and then they want that, right? So, um, and I don't think that's something that people notice. So, uh, what are ways that you see the brokenness with with drugs and the in the criminal justice system? Again, um, a lot of the laws on the books are looking at people who use. Mm-hmm. And who are small-time dealers and not looking at the drug czars. How are these drugs getting into the smaller, into the communities, to the small-time drug dealers? We've seen it. The war on drugs. You lock up all of the corner mm-hmm. drug dealers. Someone else is going to pop up back on that corner. And that's why you have 2.3 billion people sitting in jail right now with, you know, majority of them in there on drug charges. We're, you're not getting to the root of the cause by handling it that way. When we're looking at um, the marijuana, you know, it's still illegal federally, but you got your, your pockets of your states that legalized it or for medicinal purposes, but people are still finding ways around that. And then you have like the Colorado-Nebraska issue on the border where, you know, they're sitting there at the border waiting for individuals to come over mm-hmm. just so they can stop and just like stop and frisk, you mm-hmm. know, waiting. Um, oh, you went two miles per hour over the speed limit. I'm going to pull you over. You know, it's all in those mindsets and then those internal policies that those departments have because every county that's on that border doesn't see the amount of yeah. arrest as other counties are. So if that mm-hmm. county has a high arrest for people coming in uh, from Colorado with marijuana charges, it's because they're out purposefully looking for it. You know, here's an interesting number, and I'm going to screw it up, so I have to list, look back and listen to that podcast. But I believe it's somewhere around uh, Nebraska send, spends around $90 million just to try to uh, – on marijuana enforcement. 
um, because of Colorado's drug laws, and that's that's just ninety million dollars that we're spending every year. You know, every year. One thing that also um, pops into my head talking about just disproportionate in the system is something you mentioned: is pharmaceuticals versus uh, street drugs, or even um, the difference between crack cocaine and and the refined cocaine. Mm-hmm. Just how differently. We treat different types of drugs because there's there's certain types of pharmaceutical drugs that really have similar effects to to street drugs, and just and I don't know just how paper thin that that argument is, right? I think it's when people see someone has a a pill uh, addiction, they say, "Oh no, we need to get you help." If there's there, you know, they just need some help. But on street drugs, it's just like you know, get your life together. Why you you know this this loser that can't pull their life together. Uh, addiction yeah. is addiction, um, mm. whether it's pills, heroin being shot up, you know, it, and, and that's the mindset we're dealing with when people want to put parameters on how they want to treat the addiction because of the substance or because of who the person is. And you brought up the um, difference between like crack and cocaine, and that's where the whole um war really took off, war on drugs, quote unquote, took off is because they started seeing the hardened product of cocaine, which is crack, mm-hmm. being used in the black communities. Well, powder cocaine was still being used in the white communities, but there was no mm-hmm. hard crackdown on that. So it just shows how, you know, targeted <laughs> these, uh-huh. this war on drugs was. And that's why, you know, it it got to me when... Now we're looking at, well, we had this um, prescription drug abuse epidemic running through. And and what they're finding is that individuals who were abusing prescription drugs because, you know, the street value on those pills started going up so much, people found it easier and cheaper to get heroin. So now those individuals who were abusing prescription Uh, drugs have now turned to heroin. heroin. So it's like, oh my gosh, now heroin is running rampant again in mm-hmm. middle America. We need to, uh, you know, do something. middle class America, we need to do something about it. This is such a, a deep subject. I think it's one that people just assume they'll never be a part of, right? They'll just say like, well, if you don't want to go to jail, don't do illegal things. I've heard that a lot this, mm-hmm. these last couple of years. People say it's like, if you don't want the police to bother you, stop doing illegal things. Uh, what's your response to that? We kind of talked about it earlier. People think it's black and white, and it's nothing is ever just black and white when it comes to human behavior. I'll give you an anecdote of a mother who is doing her best to try and keep her household together, struggling with the little wages she gets from work, and her kids are going hungry. She has no money. Then what does she do? She goes to the store to steal to feed her children. And then you hit, get hit with it. Well, you shouldn't have done what you've done to be put in jail. But now you have a mother who is facing a burg, you know, um, mm-hmm. shoplifting charge. It may not be a felony, but still, they're put in that position to have to say, "I'm up against a rock and a hard place. What do I do?" Yeah, I've heard the argument that um, some people have made that says that our laws actually are built on the idea of morality, good people versus bad people. But it's very, it's so much easier to be moral when you have resources, right? When you have money, you don't ever have to have those hard questions. So you never have to think about stealing or selling drugs 
or prostitution. You don't have to think about those things because you because because the system is set up to benefit you already. Well, since I teased it earlier in the beginning, um, last question I'd like to ask you is, is like, okay, we're not saying that there should be anarchy in the streets, uh, not saying that there shouldn't be any laws, but let's say that um, we make you, uh, I, I would say president, but as we've seen in the last eight years, that Congress can stop president pretty, you know, pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty effectively. Yeah. Let's just say that you get control of the United States for one day. What policies, procedures do you put in place? Okay, let's give you more than one day because then let's give you a month. You have a month. What policy and procedures do you get? To, do you start making in order to start fixing a broken system? Man, it's, it, that's a hard one um, because there's so much that needs to be done. And I, I feel like this one person can't make all the decisions. It says to have many advisors because we don't know every aspect of everything. But really looking at, so I'm going to take it to the public health um, model, which is, you know, prevention. So looking at what laws are in place right now that are set up for, you know, law enforcement to have that ability to go. Because our our society is has been become hyper criminalized and where we're looking at every little end of anything to punish someone. So we have to look at getting away from that whole punishing system, getting those policies in place that are diverting individuals from incarceration, coming up with alternatives mm-hmm. for them um, instead of being that punishing society where uh, in the, in the example I use is jaywalking. Mm-hmm. I may be well, crossing the street outside of the crosswalk if I get pulled over for that or, you know, a ticket for that, for me, that is just ludicrous. <laughs> I, I, there were no cars coming. I'm just in the middle right here crossing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's just a way for another, you know, law on the books that can be used to harass individuals. So looking at those laws, making sure, you know, our police are actually being trained on how to effectively police our communities mm-hmm. and and not being set up and it's just so much yeah <laughs> so yeah is that you making sure they're getting the bias trainings and you know debiasing our attitudes and things of that nature um i mean it's just so much um looking at from the court systems we, we look at how we have mandatory minimums in place and mm-hmm. things of that nature you know getting rid of those mandatory minimums making sure we're not blanketed just no but this is the, this is it you're going mm-hmm. and, you know because mm-hmm. individuals are set up differently their their case is different and you can't just say well you're a first timer but you got this mandatory minimum mm-hmm. and you had mm-hmm. 0.2 grams over what was recommended so you're going to jail for 20 years things mm-hmm. of that nature so so looking at it like that because what i also see and we talk about it a lot. We have individuals serving 10, 15 years for low-level drug charges, whereas murderers, rapists yeah. are getting out in two years. You know, mm-hmm. things like that. Not serving enough time for a hyenas crime. And then also making sure that our individuals who are being prosecuted, that the evidence against them are is sound evidence mm-hmm. because we have a lot of individuals who are in prison who did not commit the crime they are in prison mm-hmm. for. So. 
Yeah, and the idea of a fair trial. Um, yeah, it really. I guess I think when we're when when I was young, I really had this idea that it was. Oh yeah, they put people in jail and they have like a hundred percent case on them, right? And that, and I as I get older, I, I realize, oh my gosh, no, not at all. There's a lot of guesswork that goes on. Um, if you have a good lawyer, they can they can get you off, or they can or they can make something stick. Um, really blew my mind. I think that I I love the idea of getting rid of the mandatory minimum sentencing, just because though it may make things easier for the judge, it there's. So for those of you who don't know, if you get caught three times uh, with marijuana uh, in the United States, that's a 15-year mandatory minimum sentence. So that's – and that just seems ab- absurd to me because um, like you said, uh, the – I think the, even the recommended sentence – I think the, the prosecutors asked for uh, – for Brock Larson, I think they asked for 15 years – um, I think the max was 15 years. I think they recommended five and he got at the discretion of the judge, he got six months. Um, it's per- preposterous, right? Preposterous yes. for, for that level yes. of crime. But then, uh, there's, there's young people who are being charged as juveniles, um, for low level drug offenses or, and even though people might not agree with them, violent offenses and it's their first time offense and they might be. 16, 17 years old, and then the judge throws the book at them, and they go away for for years and years. Or maybe someone's on a low-level offense, and they violate parole by smoking marijuana. They can uh, they can throw the book at you there also, and you get years added onto your sentence yes. for uh, violating parole by smoking marijuana. So there's there's so much. We could talk about this forever. Forever. <laughs> um, so what, which, for people who want to learn more about this, uh, what do you recommend? How can people just be more informed about this subject? There's a group called the Sentencing Project. I think they're out of D.C. Uh, they have a website. They're on the uh, forefront of information that's coming out with the criminal justice system and reforming and things of that nature. So I think really um, going to their website is helpful. Also, just getting involved locally. Like, you know, my, I, by trade and training, I'm a public health professional. But this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart, so I have been submersing myself and making sure that I am able to stay up to date with what's going on locally and getting involved locally that way. Great. So thank you so much for being here. Um, This, again, has been your host, Amelia Herrera, joined by Jasmine Harris. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you.